0: Love
1: talk Radio. Aloha, welcome to Talking Pictures with Paul Booth. I'm your host. So awesome to be here on a Saturday, nice weekend show. I would say it's sunny Southern California, but it's actually cloudy and gloomy, so it's nice inside, talk movie, watch movies, live movies, weather. Uh, today we are going to be continuing on Uh, Before I bring in one of the guests, we're going to be continuing on with our third part of breaking down the web series, Douchaholics, which you can find on iTunes and Amazon Prime. It had a wonderful global run, uh, 51 awards and nominations. Um, I saw this last year's Dances with Films is where it was playing. Um, I got to see it through some uh, screeners. Uh, So we want to thank Sean, Alex, Elizabeth, putting this together, our guests that have been on so far. And I see I have a caller so far. Uh, Welcome.
0: Hello, Paul. How are you doing? How's
1: it going? Is this Kevin or Ryan? Uh, This is both of us, actually.
2: Oh, okay. Yeah, this is Ryan and that's Kevin.
1: All right. Excellent. Excellent. Uh, Thanks for your guys' time today. I appreciate it. Thank you very much. Yeah. No
2: problem. Thanks for having us on. We're really excited.
1: Oh, yeah, no, it was very fun to uh rewatch the series again this morning. I've seen it uh 3 times. Uh showed it to one of our other producers, uh of course with Sean's permission, and uh watched it again this morning and just was amazed at how much uh how how many jokes I missed. Um that <laughs> that would actually be something that I would start with. Kevin has the cinematographer before we get into uh some of the I, I always have to credit Sean with some of the questions he writes because he writes these great questions of course since it's he has more of the insight into the show and it's uh I never want to act like I came up with some of these so uh this is a question uh has the cinematographer uh were you also uh if if you're you're operating as well, how did you guys? I'm, I'm, I'm always curious about this. Whether it's really heavy dramatic scene or comedy, even though you're a trained professional and you've done projects ABC, how do you possibly not laugh shooting this? Like, I, I um, that's that's where I was like confused.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's it's one of those things. It's like. And I believe, I think it was uh, Mel Brooks who said it the most, which is like comedy is actually very hard because in order for it to be funny, you have to take it sometimes very seriously. And so that's kind of how we always viewed it, which is like we did our jobs the best we could, the way we did our jobs, the the amount of like energy we put into it. At the time, it doesn't seem funny because we're putting all we have into a scene, and yet someone's saying something like motherfucking it. But we took it very seriously, like saying it in actual anger. And so the comedy, I think, comes from that. So there was a lot of us just really just looking for the truth in what we were filming, which seems so counterintuitive to a comedy, but really that adds to what I think is the best comedy, is we took it so seriously and we really put our hearts and our soul into what we were doing. And there were times where we we definitely laughed, especially if someone messed up a line or if I did something wrong and, like, the camera suddenly turned the wrong way. But for the most part, yeah, we really kind of just focused on what we were doing and sort of made sure that everything we put into it was at like the most max peak that we could as as artists and as creators.
1: Well, that's interesting that you say that, because I remember I saw a great uh, interview with Rodney Dangerfield when he, was, he, when he said when he was doing Caddyshack, he told Harold Ramis that he felt like he was bombing because nobody was laughing and Harold Ramis was like, well, nobody's supposed to laugh because yeah. we can't have the crew laughing over the sound. So he thought he was doing a horrible job and had to constantly be reassured. Um, uh, I, I, you know, I guess to start out, I mean, we have to do this with every guest and, and has a, has a talk show host. It's it's literally the question that I don't like doing, but we always have to do it. Uh, we can start with, uh, Ryan and then go to Kevin, uh basically how you guys got involved with
2: this. Oh man. Um <clears throat> I've been working with uh Gorilla Wonders in uh capacity for like six six years now and uh um I think it's six years. When did, when was Shogun? Um oh man, Shogun was yeah, almost four or five years ago. Yeah. So it's been like four or five years been working with Sean. Uh, the first set I worked on him with was a was a short film and Sean always gets a kick out of telling this story that uh, I was I was pushing the dolly um, for a shot that we were shooting inside a church and he goes okay okay that was good but let's do uh, more like I I want like more Martin Scorsese and less Tarantino and uh, and and I guess I, I nailed the move and I knew what he was talking about so I, we we spoke that language and uh, and then I guess. Um, Sean like turned around and saw me me smiling and was like, uh you know I like this guy uh and uh and ever since then they they um they called me on projects and uh I started off um, like doing smaller smaller projects and working my way to kind of bigger ones uh with with gorilla launders but uh I tried to be on every project that could with them and ultimately uh was kind of like the the pinnacle of that. <laughs> and now you're positive yeah and now I'm uh now I'm now I'm working um as a as a producer on the team so well that's uh
1: that's really cool and I like uh Sean putting it like that because that kind of uh more Scorsese less Tarantino mean to to me means uh do it for a reason don't do it to be cool um I I kind of think of that as like Paul Thomas Anderson has uh a I I'm fortunate to my, my very good friend's husband was the key grip on boogie nights. And hmm. so I've gotten him to explain the pool shot to me, but he's a very quiet guy. He's not into like telling stories. And I'm just like, but you did that opening crane shot, like explain <laughs> it. And he's just like, Oh, it's no big deal. It was just Paul said this and Paul said that. So I definitely understand where, uh, all the different uses, you know, people just, I I understand it's fun. You get tracked for the first time or everybody has that film school dream of they're going to get to do a dolly shot and it's not going to be a wheelchair or like Robert Rodriguez or, you know, so I can understand that. Um, For you as a a cinematographer, Kevin, um, so you guys have gotten to do a number of projects together. So was this, uh, it says here, gaffer grip. So, did do you guys just usually work as that small of a crew, or was this there's not a rigging grip, a key grip, a dolly grip? Uh, how, how does that how did that work on Dusha Um
0: Yeah, because we were pretty much putting the money out of our own pocket because we wanted the creative control and we wanted to make this as as good as we could. We kind of had to keep things to a minimum but luckily because we have worked with Ryan and a couple of other people over the years we were able to call the right people who we knew we could trust to handle more than one you know job on this if you look at the credits everyone has so many different hats and titles because we all just did so many things and and had to kind of just make do with what we had but in the best capacity that we could do it and and we were lucky to get a lot of great people to work on the show to do that for me as cinematographer associate producer visual effects artist supervisor then ryan coming on as grip also as one of the, the douches in the meeting at one <laughs> point like we all just kind of came together with that and it's really just through all these years that we've worked with all these people it just sort of all came together in one like really perfect moment to make doucheaholics well,
1: I, I really liked the cinematography, and today I was able to obviously because I was watching it for the cinematography. Um, I I liked, and I've Sean and I have talked just as talking film about you know our mutual love of 70s films and uh, mm-hmm. just all of those different directors. And I'm pretty sure it's in uh, L train that you do that. Uh, it's infamous with 70 films, the, the 360 mm-hmm. shot. Um, And what I really liked was when I first saw it was I could really pick up on influences. Uh, I mean, the helicopter, um, you guys did such a great job of that. Um, But I will stay on course here because we all know film lovers and filmmakers can go so far off track so quickly. So literally with no pun intended before I let the train of film talk go into outer space. Um, something that I had, I did not know. So this was a really great thing that Sean told me. I wasn't going to bring it up because I didn't know if it was a spoiler. But uh, discussing how you guys shot the meetings had had picture lock, and then did uh, the uh, flashbacks. I mean, how was that so? I don't want to say ambitious because you guys are obviously very, very skilled, but what was, I mean, let's face it. I think that's ambitious even for very skilled filmmakers. So how was that Mm -hmm. to think of having the locked cut of meetings? I mean, what was that process?
0: um, Yeah. So I think it really came about from two different things. The first one was that when we did the initial shoot with the first uh, three episodes, they shot the meetings first because we weren't really sure how we were going to fully go about the series yet. We were kind of learning as we went along. And so we shot all the meetings, but we shot none of the flashbacks. And so we just sort of kept going with that and kept shooting the meetings and meetings. And while all of that was going on, me and Sean were having discussions on the flashbacks. And that ended up actually kind of helping us out, because instead of trying to figure out the flashbacks first and then the meetings, with the meetings being so a little bit more simple and a little bit more, you know, there's not too much style with them, whereas the flashbacks have a lot of style. They all have different styles. Some of them, like you said, reference, like, 70s and even, like, the 60s with Wilhelmina and that, like, soft sort of look to the, to the footage. It gave us time to really think about how we wanted to go about the flashbacks. And so it really just became quite an advantage to be able to shoot the meetings and then go back and have the flashbacks match up with what they said on set and what everything was done in the meetings. So it it sounded sort of counterintuitive at first, but it really actually ended up being, I think, the right way to go about it. Because I think if we had done the flashbacks first, the meetings wouldn't have the same feeling, or, like, we would have to change the meetings to feel more like the flashbacks, whereas the flashbacks can have more of the feeling of the meeting since that's the main focus is they're talking about it inside the meeting. So it really just sort of came about by happenstance, but it really worked out very well, and, and it's one of the reasons why the creative style was allowed to get very fun and, and sort of you know nuanced and have all those references that we wanted to make.
1: Ah, uh, okay. Because I was, we were. We were I, did you, did either of you guys see the movie Molly's Game uh, that Aaron Sorkin mm-hmm. directed? Uh, yeah. We had we had the cinematographer of that on the show, and she was discussing how uh, how they had to shoot stuff. And they didn't know where the voiceover was going to be put. So having Mm -hmm. to come up with a visual style for just words and thinking, do I shoot Jessica Chastain when this is being said? I won't know. uh, So that was what I really thought was amazing. When I saw this, it instantly made me think of my conversation with her of, uh, just how amazing that is. I couldn't, uh, I couldn't imagine trying to direct something like that or even be on a crew. That's, uh, that was Mm -hmm. really amazing. Uh, for, for you, Ryan, as a gaffer, um, and grip, uh, I always like to ask this and this is kind of just, Oh yeah. The other thing about the show is we don't go in any kind of order. We like to just roll with it and flip flop around. And, uh, was there something from this project that you, or or a specific episode that you had a, that you had a lesson where you could kind of step back and say, you know what, I if I didn't do Douchaolics for this episode, I don't think I would have learned this about my craft.
2: I mean, <clears throat> the, I I think like all all film sets are just uh, a balance of dynamics ultimately. Um, there's so many things from personalities to, um, to relationships, friendships, uh, what Guerrilla Wonders is like a family atmosphere. Um, so like I can answer that from like a, a, social standpoint, like as far as like bonding more with the family. And I can answer that from like more of a technical standpoint as well. Um, because there, there are definitely like technical lessons, but I think like ultimately, the takeaway is like learning um, to just do the work and do it, do it well and do what you're asked. And uh, regardless of the situation that you're up against, I mean, um, you know, there were times when, uh, when you have to juggle things and move things around um, to, to be there on set. But that's, that's why I I get the phone calls is because I, I make those, those sacrifices and I'm able to do those things. Um, And then from a technical standpoint, I think uh, Kevin is, um, is brilliant at being able to walk into a location and use what is already there as far as natural light um, or uh, just not using a lot of lights, Um, you know, because of the camera, the sensitivity of the camera that we had allowed us to get uh, a lot more uh, imagery with a lot less, um, technology and so, from that standpoint, I think it was it was really good to learn that we don't have to light everything with like five lights and use like a backlight or an uplight like in the in the corner of the room to like right to to light like an angle or like not everything has to be like a hair light or like you know, um, we don't even have to play off the natural sources in the room. Uh, there were times where we just put an ice light up on the ceiling and that was my job. Like I would tape an ice light to the ceiling and then I would get back in the circle because I'd be an actor as well. But um, those were, th- th- those were the lessons that stick out in my mind as far as what I remember uh, learning. And it's not like setting up an HMI, it's not, you know, setting up a, a, an RE light or a, a Joker or, you know, working with, the G&E team to set up like um, uh, nets or um, you know frames of, of whatever it is that uh, Kevin's calling for. So it wasn't that that type of project. So it allowed it allowed me to 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 activate more avenues that I wouldn't normally be able to activate on on a film set. And that was that was a pretty enjoyable experience. If that makes sense.
0: Yeah,
1: definitely. I mean, that uh, it makes me think of film school with all that terminology. Um, mm-hmm. I've, I, you know, I, what I what I really like that I'm seeing in the last couple of years, um, and I know sometimes it's budget constraints, sometimes it's that an actor is writing a part for themselves, is there's been a major influx. Uh, I stepped out of the producing game due to some uh, car wrecks I was in, but I, I've produced a... I have a couple of features on prime and uh, there, it, it was just kind of writer, director, writer, producer, director, or, you know, the writer director who throws producer credit on there so they can take more of the royalties or whatever. But, um, what, what I'm always, what I'm interested in is a lot of the films in the last couple of years have been writer, producer, director, editor. And then, like I said, some are an actress where, They're not getting that meaty role. So they write themselves a role or so I wanted to know what it was like from, a. I guess this can be for Kevin, for a cinematographer. I know it can, I know the answer will be it's easier, but how it compares to when it's a director or a writer director that you have writer, producer, director, editor, and acting on set as well. Because that's usually, like we well, like we know, it's usually writer, producer, director, actor. Mel Gibson didn't edit Braveheart, so how 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 is that dynamic when the guy calling the shots is also in in the frame and behind the frame? <laughs> <laughs>
0: um, it was a very different dynamic. Um, Sean has acted in his own stuff before, but. This one was a very unique situation in that he kind of had to be one of the leads and really focus on that. And so it really it came down to a lot of discussions we had of him putting his trust in all of us if we were filming him and having him there. And also, you know, Elizabeth as producer as well was there. And she's she's great at and also, since she's an actress, she's good at knowing when someone's really giving it their all or they're not giving it their all. And so all of us just kind of had our checks and balances there, like just making sure that everything was working smoothly. And it it created sort of an interesting situation that, yeah, I haven't really experienced on a lot of other sets. You don't always have that. You have the one person with their role and that's all they do. Whereas in this one we had everyone just sort of focusing on so many things that we could all just bounce around and be a little bit more fluid in some ways. You know, you didn't have to stick to a certain rigid, rigid schedule because things would change and we would suddenly put on a different hat if we needed to, and then shift around. And, like, for the first, like, uh, three episodes, the meetings, um, I actually couldn't be there because I had an eye surgery. And so Michael, the other DP, was there working with them on that and getting all the acting and, like, figuring out all of that stuff. And so we all just sort of switched around and did what we had to, but in a way it was really kind of freeing. It really was because you just were able to play and just, do what you needed to do as long as you knew the right reasons of why you were there. And it's something, yeah, I haven't really experienced on other sets before.
1: Because mm-hmm. I feel like, you know, each generation has their different uh, one location films for a few of those episodes that, you, and flashbacks aside, um, of course, you know, Breakfast Club, to me it's all about twelve angry men and then if you go back and know that with twelve angry men that they shot each person's angle and then would come back and do the other thing and I think of that kind of yeah. matching of that it might have been five mm-hmm. days later that you're shooting the reaction shot and it's like and that's just Sydney Lamette. And again, we won't get into talking about Sydney Lamette. <laughs> um uh talk that's that's the one thing that I can just Completely, like, just sabotage this episode by discussing dogs' ass and um,
0: the
1: uh, yeah, I mean, yeah. I mean, once you get into Serpico and all that, it's just yeah. like bye
0: bye.
2: Oh,
1: wow. um, the uh, and and so that I mean, that's what I liked about this. I, what was interesting for me was I I I'm not I wasn't uh, into web series because I get We get so many features or shorts or film festivals and the show was kind of really taking this different turn when I, when I came across this. So I thought, you know, this is actually cool. I, I'm addicted enough to prime and Netflix that I don't need to be addicted to web series. So uh, I thought this is cool. This will be a new thing. And uh, I really liked Sean. So I thought there's very little chance that I won't enjoy this because I believe a film starts first with the with the person. I mean, sure there's idiots and jerk offs that make good films, but I think most good films come from good people. And so I knew right away that I was gonna I was gonna dig it. So um I know there's been a lot I've seen online there's been a lot of love and a lot of attention and liking for uh episode three and I'm assuming uh, Ryan, <laughs> is this where you had to rig a car that that was uh, the yeah, had, to, you ever, had yeah. to rig
2: the uh the minivan for uh for L train?
1: Yeah, so this episode I watched it again. Aside from I've uh uh spoken to Jen, and obviously she's great and wonderful. And she came on mm-hmm. and did an episode with uh Syrah and uh Elizabeth were on, and um. That episode was just so. Um, so yeah, I, t- tell us tell us that uh, aspect because we do have listeners that are they're on the technical side, uh, rigging a minivan. I mean, what was some of the challenges <laughs> and some of the gear and uh, having to deal with the way that you had to, you know, the car did have to be kind of racing around. How how does that? What was that experience like?
2: I mean. <laughs> it was it was uh, I remember there was a time constraint on having to to rig it in a certain amount of time because we were trying to stick on schedule and um and uh we had we rented the mount points uh from a local rental shop here in the bay area and um and then it came time to break them out and it was like okay we have we have these uh how does this work how to, how, to, how does this go together? And then um, and then I remember we got the, the rig on the car and we got it, you know, got it together and we got it built, um, which actually wasn't that hard at all. But uh, then the question came, okay, now we're putting the FS7 onto the rig, onto the hood of this minivan, which Jen is going to be, like, driving, like, flying down the street. So, like, not only is, like, the camera, like, not safe, like, who knows like if she breaks and like the camera goes like you know, like I mean it's just it's it's just what so we we had to find like additional like mounting points of course and so like nobody had uh ratchet straps. Um so I remember like we were well like I went to the producer and was just like we need like uh ratchet straps and and uh he he made sent somebody on a run and uh we got ratchet straps and ratcheted it down to the car and uh and um and then it was like Godspeed. <laughs> <laughs> right. Which most of it is people that
1: uh that aren't that don't make films know that that's that there's so many things where it's uh I call it the movie gods. Um <laughs> or some people I, I I or also too, I mean I remember the first time I ever was a PA on this just this, this stupid reality show on USA network and the transportation captain was this old school guy who had been like on young guns and, and young guns Two And U turn and he would just tell me all these crazy stories about Charlie Sheen and Oliver Stone. And, and it was just, I'm not into name dropping. It was just, he was just one of those guys that just had all, I mean, he used to have to like pick up Charlie Sheen at two in the morning and like take him to find Coke. And, and it was just like really hilarious. and And he always told me, he said, just learn that all you're basically doing is waiting for the next act of God, and that never made sense until I just you know was into my third or fourth feature, and things would just crumble as you guys know, we have no control of it, and it's like, wow, so that whole thing of you saying that it's it Jen's racing around, is the camera to fly is the um yeah. on on a quick note what 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 was that that you uh shot on, Kevin?
0: Um, So all of the uh, flashbacks, except for the first uh, two episodes, were all shot in the FS7. And then the first two episodes were shot on the Canon C500. Um, And a lot of the meetings were a mixture of those two cameras and also the Red Epic, which was Michael's camera. Um, So it's really been like a mixture of a bunch of different things. Whatever we needed for that moment, we kind of used. The FS7 now is kind of our our main camera, it's the one that me and Sean bought together because it's a beautiful camera, and I love the way you can use it. And yeah, like you can wick it up to a car. Yeah,
2: with budget strap. We, it's great. <laughs> yeah, we, we actually got it on uh, on for yeah. uh, for the for, la- for episode six. Yeah,
0: yeah, we we've, we've done a lot with the FS7, so yeah. it's been like a nice, really wonderfully versatile camera. We can use on a different lot of different things, um, but ultimately, like I've always said, it it's not so much the camera you use. It's how you use it. Mm -hmm. You know, just like in the, like I came from the world of film. That's where I started. And I love film. And the way you light for that is just for exposure, not for like, Oh, my sensor is like 4k. My sensor is 8K. That doesn't matter. What's your lighting? Like, what can you like, are you having correct exposure and stuff like that? And that was really just the challenge that we had on this show is just not looking at it as like, what camera do you have? It's like, do I have light going into this sensor? And that's what's really the most important thing to make sure is correct.
2: Uh, okay, I
1: see. Yeah, because I know now, in, just in my experience, I'm like such a tech fool. I mean, I, cinematography <laughs> class was the one thing that I, I remember my cinematography teacher told me that you don't have to understand cinematography you have to understand if a cinematographer is wasting your time and,
2: you know, and he because not, he also, you know, because
1: of, right. Because of course that leads to budget and that leads to, you know, schedule. So I, and, and it, and it, again, it didn't make sense. So I was uh, in the, you know, in the middle of my fourth or fifth short and realized, okay, you know what? I have a cinematographer who says he needs five minutes and he's done in four. And I thought, God, this, was 10 years later but that makes sense um mm-hmm. let's see you mm-hmm. guys did kind of discuss about elizabeth uh and you guys uh her her approach um kevin this question's for you um and mm-hmm. this, i for me again it's kind of uh i don't mean to stay on episode three um cool. seems like just such a great it just seems like such a great middle but uh, yeah. Your approach to your approach to being both the cinematographer as well as the post production supervisor and the lead effects ar- effects artist, which I know from a friend who does previs on uh, like Divergent and Godzilla, and uh, mm-hmm. I know that there's hundreds of people that could be doing a two minute sequence, so. Yes. what was that like to separate those three positions for uh for for that episode because there was a, I mean that that was those effect shots were not just quick uh mm-hmm. you know as as you know but I'm saying for the audience when you guys check this show out it, it is not like oh it was done at the local high school that had a cool computer program it's um <laughs> uh, I think it's a little bit of a casino homage uh, but that's just my take. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah. So, that's uh, exactly how, what it how, is. how was that? There? Yeah, yeah, no, yeah, I was so like, yeah. hey, that's the – I'm waiting for the uh, the. voiceover to say, it was amateur hour. They put this plate under the car. Sorry, go ahead.
0: Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. it's funny because uh, uh, Laura's episode for me and Sean was actually all about Scorsese and, like, Casino and especially uh, Goodfellas. So, like, Laura's driving around and everything, that was really all, like, really coming from Goodfellas in the last couple uh, of moments in that movie with him driving around the car and the van and, like, the helicopters and all of that. So, yeah, that that whole episode had a lot of Scorsese in it. And for me, the one thing is, like, I'm also a director, and one of the things I learned really young was, as a director, I want to know how to do everything because, to me... That gives me an advantage. So, that, like, if I'm a cinematographer, but I'm also a visual effects artist, I know that on set I can make things like already easier for me later on down the line. Whereas I think most people just have like, oh, there's, you know, the set supervisor who tells them what to do, and then the visual effects artist gets the file, and then they go, why they do that, and then they have to do extra work. Whereas I go, oh, I know what I need to do ahead of time. I know how I need to do it, so I can set it up for myself that way. So in a way, I kind of. I kind of had an advantage that I didn't really have in a lot of other projects where I could really just already see what was coming around the corner. And still there were surprises and especially mm-hmm. for like the explosions and stuff, there's always <laughs> going to be challenges with that. That'll never, that'll never get easy or <laughs> or quick, but, but I could at least know going into it, what we needed to do and Sean would know that I would understand that instead of having to explain that later on down the line of being like, Oh, now how do I explain this to this measure of effects So oh, Here's what we were doing and why we shot it this way. Instead, it's like, oh yeah, Kevin shot this. It's fine. He knows exactly what he's doing. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, okay,
2: great. Right, right. So it, it
0: it it has its advantages to being sort of having all these multiple hats for me, and and I find that's just something that a lot of people nowadays are starting to realize, and that's something that I even heard from um, William Freakin, and Sean was hanging out with him, and even William said that he wished he had started out in different.
1: Mm-hmm. components
0: as opposed to a director so that he can learn all these things and know what you know this special effects artist is talking about and why they need this time and stuff like that so i think that's
2: that's been another advantage for us right. just having that knowledge yeah it's like guillermo del toro and uh the shape of water um mm-hmm. it's like that opening shot is like all shot on like projection and like blue screen and he's like well, that was the only way we could do it, like, under budget, you know, was, like, we couldn't really shoot in water, and and so he had that visual effects experience from when he was a visual effects artist, and uh, and uh as a direct, combined that, and I think that's really attractive for a lot of different reasons um, for, you know, everybody from investors to, like, producers.
1: Oh, yes, of course, and it's interesting that you mentioned Friedkin because obviously, uh, you know, talk about it coming into film in a different time, and mm-hmm. he's much more tame with the ego and uh, such as that. I recommend uh, listeners out there, the book Easy Riders, Raging Bulls. Uh, oh, yeah. Down all the 70s directors. Goes from like 69 Easy Rider, Wild Bunch, up until when it was just about box office jaws. Top Guns, all that. Uh, William Friedkin, quite the character, quite the, you know, sunk his own career with that sorcerer. And then, uh, I like that Samuel Jackson movie, he made Rules of Engagement. That was interesting. But it would be interesting to talk to him. Mm-hmm. I I interviewed Peter Bogdanovich once, and it was so interesting, because I remember thinking he used to sit around and interview, I'm not comparing myself to him, but I thought he used to sit around and interview Howard Hawks and John Ford, and Charlie Chaplin mm-hmm. and I thought what can I really ask him like you know what <laughs> what's going to actually in, engage him uh I was able to bring up Bert Schneider of course who produced uh Easy Rider and The Last Picture Show and The Monkeys, and launched so many people and he actually said how old are you you're you're 32 and you you know Bert Schneider and so I was like okay cool and so that kind of opened him up a bit, but uh Bogdanovich mm-hmm. was what you hear about. Uh just like uh, you know, just the character that we all think. The myth is not a myth um now let's see. Uh oh okay so this is always a good one. Um and and we can go Ryan then Kevin. Uh basically what in? I'll, I'll add to this. Sean has what inspires you about filmmaking, but I would like to know what inspires. Uh, part of the basis of this show is we want to know also what inspires the human, not just the has artist. You know, we're going to love Casino, we're going to love The Graduate, we're going to love Lawrence of Arabia, but then those films that hit us as people. So, what inspires you about the hmm. about filmmaking? Has a person, not just that we we're, we're, we all know we're so excited about the craft.
2: Um, so, I mean, for me, it's all about the subtleties and the fact of when a movie's done so well that you just lose track of the fact that it was a bunch of shots and images and production reports and um, and it's it comes together in this big cohesive piece and like more than that um i love things that dive beneath the surface like cinematographers that light things a certain way or directors that shoot with a certain angle and it's off like uh, alfred hitchcock um is, is is famous for that that kind of stuff and like um and and you wonder why and then you look at it and you you ask yourself what does it add does it add like an element of suspense does it add an element of 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 terror like and is that the is that the intended reaction and why am I reacting this way and like so that that's always been fascinating for me um particularly in like watching movies even at a young age like I picked up on those those subtleties and just seeing those things and be like something something's off here or like oh I feel like this story's about to, to, to change and um you know and see if I'm right you know, and of course, you watch movies for movies, but when you, when you watch them over and over again, you, you start to, to develop that muscle a little bit, and, and, um, and then you can strengthen it. And I think that that's what ultimately can make you a better filmmaker, but also make you more aware of it as a human being, because as you become more aware of, of what you're feeling and what you're seeing, um, you can start to translate that into real life and into the real, real world. Interesting. Yeah,
1: no, definitely when it's something beneath the surface, I like those films that kind of are not just when it's being subversive or taking a jab, but when it's really kind of just peeling a little bit more of the onion. And of course, like you said, when we watch it more and more, I just found myself watching casino on Netflix the other day and I just thought, (laughs) why am I watching this again? I was just, I thought I can probably, like, quote it with the mm-hmm. as it goes along. I can say what the next word is. Um, And I just thought that I know what shot's coming. Okay, here's the, I mean, my favorite scene is you can have the hammer, the you can have the money or the oh, yeah. hammer, but you yeah. can't have both. And I'm just like, mm-hmm. I just said that with De Niro, so why am I watching this? There's so many other things I need <laughs> to be learning or, like, you know may I could be out, like feeding homeless right now but instead I'm watching casino for the 7000th time um Kevin uh for you what is what what drives uh what drives Kevin to make
0: films for me there was something sort of i guess magical like we always say film magic but there was something magical about the fact that like these stories they they're fake stories. They're not true. They're not real. And yet people would just have so much emotion behind them. They believe them. they'll, you know, root for them. You know, I, I remember when I was a kid, I watched jaws for the first time and it shocked me, but not in a bad way, in like a great way, because I was like, you're scared of this creature that you have no right to be scared of. In a lot of respects you're sitting on your couch at home watching a movie about sharks, wondering why it's going to come up and eat you. But it's not. And it was just sort of this wonderful thing of, like, I can make people feel emotions by telling them a story. And I like that. I like the idea that it can affect people that way, and both visually and also just with the writing. And it's something that, to me, I just I, – I think it's just absolutely amazing that we have that ability to do that. That's why I just – I always put everything I have into what I do because – you have such power behind it, you know, and, and for me, that's where I really came from, was just, I love this idea of making someone feel something for a character that does not even exist, and that, to me, just has always rung to me, and, and visually, I love making people think one thing, and then telling them another, and like, hmm. like this, like, short, like Ryan just said, the subtext, I love subtext, I love that in a lot of my pieces, you know, I do that with a lot that I, that I make, and it's because there's something that we all, as humans, do a lot. We all sit there and go, hi, how you doing? But then you look at them, and you go, oh, you didn't mean that. You didn't mean that at all. And right. I like putting that on, on screen, having them feel that, and you believe that character says that, and it and yet it's not real. And, like, it's just one of those things that, to me, it boggles my mind, but I love it. And that's, that's kind of where I came from for filmmaking. No, that's, re- that's really
1: interesting. I, I'm, you know, that was the one thing. And as far as cinematographers go, I can, I can let Sean know or, uh, drop you guys an email. Uh, we've had, we had the cinematographer of get out of Mudbound. Mm. Um, mm. we've had a number of, we just got really lucky with a PR rep that we met that, uh, she reps a lot of ASC members. Um, and uh, the cinematographer of Michael Mann's Collateral and uh, just all kinds of different stuff. And uh, we just had this great run. Uh, even Sean was instrumental. We had uh, Vincent uh, who shot a lot of the Defiant Ones, the Dr. Dre documentary. Oh, yeah.
2: Yeah. Uh, yeah, so I
1: really, also, yeah. I, oh, sorry. Oh yeah. I, I it was so random. I, I saw this billboard and I was, a little too far away from it and I said oh my god if they're remaking the Sydney Portier movie I'm going to get out and personally like
0: throw rocks
1: <laughs> at it you know I was like "I." and then of course I found out that, that they did remake it in, in the, in the mid 80s as a TV movie with Carl Weathers and I thought ugh and then I saw I go okay and, and literally it was like two weeks before it came out so I got my free HBO trial and I put it on and I did a little stupid YouTube review of it, and then uh, we—I got an email and said, "Hey, would you like to talk to the guy that was the DP?" and and that had never happened to me. So I just was like, "Wow, this is crazy!" Mm-hmm. Like, you know, I saw a billboard, <laughs> like, thought yeah. who's gonna, yeah. you know, look at this Facebook review at nine o'clock on a Sunday night. Um, so I was just saying that because, like, you guys were saying, uh, I also do this show for that that little magic that can happen, that guess that you weren't sure you were going to get or didn't know if you would ever get, and then all of a sudden you're on the air Mm -hmm. with them. Uh, That's been really cool, Uh, especially with this, because this is the first time that we've gotten to, of course, since it's our first web series, but to break down a series and Mm -hmm. uh, to have had multiple episodes. So this has been a really... Uh, great learning experience. Um, even though I've had the good fortune to work on sets and go to film school, and I've been so blessed to to be the office PA or the set PA or the and just see the intricate teamwork, and then also have to be in charge of departments and put up with that headache. So uh, for me, I, I like you guys had mentioned it's the uh, the teamwork, uh, the family feeling. Just some quick Mm -hmm. show maintenance uh, for everyone. Uh, Douchaholics, again, can be found on iTunes and Amazon Prime. uh, Six-part web series. Uh, I don't know. Some episodes are seven minutes, some are Um, Mm ten. It is hilarious. I would highly recommend it as like a date night. Um, (laughs) I can't say anything past that because we have to watch anything we say now about dates. Um, and then for the show uh, you can go to www.talkingpicturesla.com again that's www.talkingpicturesla.com top right hand corner click on podcast episodes this is episode 304 so you can go back we have cinematographers production designers directors Uh, we've had over 50 guests with stuff released to Prime or Netflix or Stars or HBO or uh, the writer, producer, director. So uh, you guys can just dig in. There's something for everyone. Uh, we're a show that celebrates student filmmakers to Oscar and Emmy nominees. We are we don't say you have to be Brad Pitt to come on and you don't have to have won Sundance to come on. So everyone's uh, in and. So there's that show maintenance, and we'll jump back to the questions. Um, let's see. Um, hmm. Okay, here's what, here's here's what I like to ask each guest, and we'll start with Kevin. Uh, mm-hmm. Is there? This is actually a. This is actually for the last twenty or thirty episodes, we've asked every guest this. Uh, Stories there, directors there, budget is there, gears there. Uh, what is the genre that you want to do before you stop making films? Like, you have to say, I've made this.
0: Um. am hmm. uh, not sure how to answer that. <laughs> um, I mean, I've sort of done every genre out there. I mean, my main love of genre is actually horror. I love horror films, and that's sort of the thing I really want to get into. But we've worked on pretty much everything at this point: comedy, <laughs> action, um, suspense, thrillers. Um, yeah, I'm not sure. To me, it's yeah, the horror would be my main thing, thrillers and stuff like that. I think those are the ones I love like, again for the emotional stuff, and like you can really get people to like cling onto their seats and everything. Um, I love comedy as well. That's another big thing for me. So. I don't know. That's a tough question. (laughs) Yeah, if
1: you're into thrillers, on a side note, uh, on Netflix, just uh, type it, look up Samuel L. Jackson. He's got a lot of these little, just, they get written off as straight to Netflix, Mm -hmm. but there's like three or four really good ones that he did recently. Um, Unthinkable, Meeting Evil, The Mm -hmm. Samaritan, where of course it has Mm -hmm. the standard cliches, but then they do find a good ending that changes you from thinking i mean let's face it every movie has to have some cliches and people make me nuts when they go it was cliche it's you know it's like everything has been done at by (laughs) by this point you know there like i i get it when they say you know paul thomas anderson yes he was original but he was original because he was talking about the san fernando valley there was nothing else mm-hmm. he did that hadn't been done. There had been ensembles. There had been dolly moves. There had been porn movies. <laughs> like, So yeah. I think people always have to look at that audience. Um, I'm not a film snob. I can tell you guys aren't. Sean isn't. But I, mm-hmm. I'm always interested, like you had mentioned Hitchcock, people who would not sit down and watch Strangers on a Train, but then mm-hmm. will mm-hmm. talk about some thriller they saw. And it's like, where do you think mm-hmm. thrillers come from? Like (laughs) anybody who makes a suspenseful movie, like just is all they did was watch Hitchcock and they're just trying to be Hitchcock. So it's like, I love when people do that, when they like, especially too with music, you know, And they're like, Oh, I just can't stand the blues, but I love rock and roll. It's like, well, that's all rock and roll is, you know, Like, um, you're telling me Stevie Ray Vaughan isn't rock and roll or the blues. Give me a break. Um, So for, for, for the second part of the question, Kevin, is, is there a genre no matter what, stories there, et cetera, but you know electricity's off, you haven't eaten in two days or in two weeks, they're gonna take your car, but there's no way you're gonna shoot this this genre. You you don't want anything to do with it.
0: Uh probably romance.
1: <laughs> romance ah, So comedy is okay But a romantic comedy no ah, Interesting yeah. Yeah. Okay well you yeah. you, well, you must be married <laughs> or you just wanted to Kill your dating life on the air but sorry about That not being personal Um. Yeah. Okay So romance interesting because The number one answer has always been Porn so I guess that Fits into romance Yeah um, Yeah <laughs> <laughs> Which the girls of this show laughed about and talked about, so I don't have to worry about what I'm mentioning. Um, again, all the opinions of the show are that of the host and not of Sean or his, or his uh, you know, find, giving that disclaimer I forgot to give. Um, so for you, Ryan, same thing. Is there is there a genre mm-hmm. that you want to make sure you're a part of before... before uh,
2: I I mean, um, yeah, there's there's so many things. Like, I I think it just comes down to storytelling ultimately and like how you can approach it from like a visual standpoint, being a very, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm a visual person and like looking at things visually, like how, how would I approach this? Um, you know, and I think that's, that's a great, uh, power to have. I mean, I realize like some, a lot of times you don't even get like a quarter of the things that you want, but, um, you know to to kind of sacrifice on that vision i think would be uh would be a a, a great experience just to have that and just just to be like yeah like you know at one point um i had i mean i i'd done like feature films uh on like micro budgets um you know shooting uh like my my thesis film uh from film school um everybody did a short oh, film. Wait, hold right. on. you broke up are you there yeah okay hold um, on you there Okay, yeah okay, sorry about that, so yeah, when I was in high oh, no school um uh I, I did a feature film and um and that was the first feature I ever shot, and it was like a super micro budget. I mean we shot it on like the black magic cinema camera and and then uh and then one thing that i, I followed it up uh with was um my my love of lighting like I started really learning how to work with lights and and how light works and kind of setting light um, from some of the local gaffers here when I worked on a, on a big feature and then I took that knowledge and applied it to film school uh, when I was there and um, one of the things that I, I really loved was the experience of uh, shooting a film noir and, uh, and I have such a, a respect for people um, like even Stanley Kubrick like and just him like DPing uh, you know I think it was uh, The Killing yeah. That, that, that he DP'd, and then um, the DP that he worked with uh, after. Or the DP, I can't remember if it was before or after. There were two films that he shot um, before or after the killing and worked with Kubrick. And, I mean, those films are just uh, just breathtakingly gorgeous. And, um, and to try to, like, imitate that and look at that and just be like, okay, like, we have, you know, we have, like, basically... Uh, not any professional lighting equipment at all and um and to i, I i'm really proud of the way like it came out and, and looked and and um and so I, that would be like my answer would be like the film noir genre not necessarily the 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 subject matter but the the way how the lighting is and the, and the contrast um of the, the the shadows and the darks i think has always been uh, very intriguing to me. Um so I'd love to work kinda around that space but also not put myself into that space, explore other avenues, but that would be something that I'd feel really comfortable doing. Well uh
1: speaking of the killing, has most people who well, you're not supposed to know unless you're like a big film nut, but uh Reservoir Dogs is basically wait, the killing is the one where they rob with masks on, right? And They don't know who each other is, and everyone thinks Tarantino invented that for Reservoir Dogs, but he was taking from The Killing. Killer's Kiss, the boxing movie, actually wanted to let you guys know that on Prime right now, they have Fear and Desire up, and of course, that's Kubrick's elusive first feature, which Mm -hmm. I don't know why it's been lost forever, but Amazon Prime found it. Uh, I will never understand how DVD couldn't find it. Blu-ray couldn't find it. VHS (laughs) couldn't find it, but the people at Amazon. And uh, so again, for everyone out there, Kubrick fans, this is the elusive first feature. Uh, So I don't know. Milos Forman's first feature was awful. Polanski's first feature, I couldn't even finish it. And I'm Mm -hmm. not condoning what Roman Polanski did by watching his films. And, um, so I'm interested, there's part of me that wants to see it. And there's part of me that doesn't want to see a Kubrick film that sucks. So Mm -hmm. uh, that's why I have it. I have it in my queue, but we all know we have Netflix queues and prime queues that are overflowing. Mm -hmm. We have 42 films and we only have time to watch two. Um, so I'm glad that that you brought up the killing because people need to know that Kubrick did do stuff before Spartacus and a clockwork orange. Um, yeah. So thank you for mentioning and, and,
2: that. Uh, okay. I I think if you look at that work, that's like really the footprint I think of like kind of what started him, if I could say so, because it's like there's so much that that he did and so much responsibility that he took on. I think when he ultimately could put people in different positions and entrust people to be in those positions, I think his work just just took off, and that allowed him to focus on other parts of, of filmmaking.
1: Right, right. I mean, I'm a you know Kubrick so I mean, I, I got to see Clockwork Orange out in Roseville on a 35 millimeter classic film oh. night, and it was a, mm. and, and it was so frustrating because they started out, and the projectionist had it out of focus and it was like that one time where it was like you can't rewind it so it was like <laughs> yeah. and we were just yeah i remember i was talking to the manager i was like any other film but Clockwork Orange, like you know we had a yeah, right. different but it's like and people were like come on and i just like it's like god this poor projectionist he should just stay in the projection booth because he's going to get mobbed and so finally yeah. he fixed it of course but Um, that's a, that movie is crazy on the big screen and The Shining is so scary. There's actually, for, uh, audience Mm -hmm. out there and our friends who are, uh, producer that lives outside Denver, the hotel where they shot The Shining has a yearly Mm -hmm. horror film festival. Uh, Mm -hmm. and, um, I'm sure you guys knew that, but, um. I forget what time of year it is, but look it up, and uh, that was probably pretty creepy to see a horror film festival in the Shining Hotel, um, but uh, it, what we do here with the last minute, last moments is, is we open it up to anything the guests would like to say, it's pretty much just an open floor, and you guys can go in whatever
2: order you want. Cool.
0: Oh um, yeah, I mean, for me, what I would like to say at the end is just something for everyone who's out there, who's a filmmaker who wants to get into film is, I it's nowadays it's almost the best time to be a filmmaker in some ways. You have all this equipment, you have all this stuff, but at the same time, it's sort of the worst time to be a filmmaker because a lot of people lose the reasons why you tell a story and why you do something. I think that, like, for Doucheaholics, we had the right reasons. We wanted mm-hmm. to tell something funny, but also kind of truthful. Everyone knows someone who's a douchebag. Everyone knows someone who's been douchey in their life. And it just doesn't really matter what you shoot on as long as you have the right stories behind you. You know, you, we brought up The Killing in Stanley Kubrick's mm-hmm. first film and, like, whether or not you really want to watch his first one. And it's like, okay, if you watch the first one and it's horrible, it doesn't matter because what you just watched is a man learning his craft. Right. Not every great filmmaker right. starts off just being amazing at what they do. You learn from it.
2: You, you yeah. start
0: somewhere and you go from somewhere. And honestly, my whole thing has always been you will never stop learning until the day you die. When you finally yeah. pass from this world, you're learning, your lessons will be done. Until then, you will do nothing but learn and continue to learn and change and move with everything that goes through with life, I mean, that's just the way it works. So it, if you're frustrated, if you don't know what to do about your film, if you don't know what you're doing, take your time. It's, it's not impossible. There's a way to do it. If we can achieve things, <laughs> you can achieve I mean, things. It all comes down to story and the passion you have behind it. And I think that's just the most important thing to, like, get across nowadays because so many people are obsessed with gear. with like, oh, I want the cinematic look. It doesn't matter. I've seen movies made on 8mm films that are amazing. I've seen movies that are made on, like, 8K red cameras that look awful. It does not matter the cinematic look. It matters what's the story you want to tell and how does that grab someone. Mm-hmm. And that's the one thing I think is being lost in a lot of people nowadays. And I hope that, like,
2: Dushaholics
0: and, like, our work and, and other people's work can kind of inspire people, again, to remember that it is just about the story and the characters. Visuals are important, but they're not as important as what you put behind all of that.
2: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, and, yeah. That's, uh, no, I I, know, I I
1: really agree with that. That's a great answer.
2: Yeah. Go ahead, right? Um, uh, I was gonna say, uh, first of all, I I remember that it was Stanley Kubrick that he DP'd *The Killer's Kiss*, I believe, and I uh, he I don't think he he DP'd the killing. Uh, he directed and DP'd *The Killer's Kiss*. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just want to say that for the record, um, but uh, also. Um, you know, I, I want to give a, a shout-out to Natalie, to our, our uh, Gorilla Wonders intern who's here from Indiana for the summer. And she's here on a Saturday with us at the, at the lab, just hanging out and, like, doing some filming behind the scenes. Um, but I had a question for you, uh, actually, Paul, because this is uh, something we're doing a a, a series of, uh, of videos around events. And uh, we're kind of asking all of our interviews this question And it kind of goes along the lines with um, with our our Doucheaholics web series, Um, and the the question is this: is that if uh, if you were to write yourself into to the series of of Doucheaholics, like what what character, how do you foresee yourself being in this in this universe, and like what would your your personality be, or your kind of douche superpower, in a sense, uh, kind of what we've been calling it.
1: It's really funny that you say that because when I was watching today, I've I've never had an interest in being on camera acting. I've I've always wanted to be an extra just to just to experience it. Uh, but I was thinking today, I was thinking, you know, I was like, I want to tell Sean that I want to, even if I'm just someone who's sitting in a chair, like I would love to just be that, you know. Um, but the problem is is I is the douche that I would love to be is one that I don't know if people would understand, but I would love to be the film snob douche. The one that, mm. you know those nice. guys you hear at the movie theater where they're like, Fellini did this and but it's not as good as but you have to take into reference that Truffaut you know, but I think for a real, you know, a douchebag quality, what what I re- what really bugs me is because I'm from Hawaii and I'm mellow, so I don't mean to say this, yeah. I'm not knocking California people, but those douchey mm. people that, like, are waiting in line at grocery stores and, like, will literally, like, push an 80-year-old woman aside and be like, I, I got to be at Pilates. And it's just like, <laughs> well, then leave earlier, you know, like, yeah did you really just push that 80-year-old woman aside because, like, you don't want to wait in the Walgreens line? Like, and then they always have one thing in their hand. So, it's like they could have went without their gum, and it's never something that they need for Pilates. So, it's like, those are the people that I look at, and that's what makes me think, like, it's so douchey, but it's a tough thing because it's just because I'm from Hawaii, and I'm so mellow and chill, and I don't think you should rush people, and I don't think you should bump into people, and so... I, I kind of have to examine whether or not that's douchey or that's just a hell of a lot of people, uh, out here. I don't know. So but that's a really great, a great so, question. That's you're, you're going to make me, you're going to make me want to create my own douche.
2: That's, a yeah, really, that's I think, a really uh, thing. I think we might be starting like a movement up here in, in Northern <laughs> California because we got some pretty interesting answers so far. <laughs>
1: Yeah, no. I, I was gonna say that's a real. That was a really interesting question. I appreciate that. And one thing I wanted to say again for audience is this show. Um, I I don't think I said it on the last episode. I said it in one or two of the episodes. It in no way uh, uh, makes fun of spoofs or um, may, uh, knocks the like AA or NA or Mm -hmm. any of the groups that are out there with people with uh, real diseases or problems that they're struggling with. So uh, don't think that it's uh, because it's comedy or it's a that it's in any way making light of people that are battling diseases like alcohol or drug addiction. So I wanted to make sure that that people knew that uh, going into it. I, I really, Uh, I told Sean in the first episode I really respected that even though it is, you know, there's the funniness of L-Train, it's still not making fun of the disease or the, Mm -hmm. um, I I lost an ant to pill addiction, so when I saw that episode it was Mm -hmm. kind of tough at first, and then it was funny, and then it was so, and I felt the same way Mm -hmm. today, so uh, I appreciated that you guys uh, maintained a nice respect for that, so. Uh, we appreciate yes. you guys joining us today. Again, this was episode three. We're going to have a couple more for you, for the audience. Um, you guys can go in our archives. We've talked to Sean and Elizabeth, the creators, writers. Um, I don't. I didn't check the credits. If Sean was also a PA, um, <laughs> I loved. I love <laughs> that he had so many roles, and he isn't an asshole yeah, about it. He might have been. Um, uh, um i just love that um and then uh we have an episode where we had harmony and l train um and that was really fun because we talked way too long it was kind of like i forgot we were doing an episode and then we've had anthony and d cup and so it's Mm -hmm. this has been really fun so again i just really appreciate you guys coming by and i'll make sure to get the link off to you guys once it's done and uh so yeah, I, I really had a great time today.
0: Perfect. Hey, thank you so much for letting us come on the show. We really appreciate
2: it. Yeah, thanks, Paul. It's been uh, a pleasure.
1: No problem. You guys have a great afternoon.
2: All right. You too, sir. Take care.
1: Thanks, then. Bye. And that wraps up our third episode in the Douchaholics series, Talking Pictures series on Douchaholics. Check it out on iTunes or Amazon Prime, and then you get the good fun of coming back to Talking Pictures and hearing the actors talk, the cinematographer, the directors, the writers, all that. That's going to wrap it up for me on this. This It's coming out. So it is a sunny Southern California afternoon. Take care. Aloha. Spread some peace. Most of all, make sure and watch a good movie.